Okay, this is Mark Rees, and I'm interviewing Phil Grime for a podcast for Journal of Ecology. This podcast is linked with a blog Phil has very kindly written for us, and the whole thing is coupled to a virtual issue in Phil's honour that's being published in Journal of Ecology, uh, which covers a lot of his more influential papers in the journal. Okay, a few questions about your background first, Phil. Could you tell us a little bit about what you consider to be the key formative events that have shaped your research? Well, uh, uh, Mark, can I first say that I think this is a very um, generous um, effort by the society and it's a, an opportunity for me to reflect on things that have been going on in my career over a very long time. Um, I think perhaps the most formative experience was that I did uh, spend my early years wandering in the countryside. Uh, there was an opportunity to do that because I lived in a part of Lancashire that was then described as uh, the Green Belt and it was an opportunity for me to uh, wander at will as children did in those days uh, and I followed the pattern of many children who lived in the countryside. I was interested in birds and in plants. And so you went to university doing a botany degree or? Yes, uh, I, I did some zoology and some chemistry when I first came to Sheffield, but uh, botany was always high on my list of priorities. Okay, so um, what are the key principles, do you think, and ideas that have kind of shaped your whole view of ecology and evolution? Well, I, I've come to respect rather more easily the science of those biologists who have spent some time actually out there looking at natural ecosystems. Um, because I do think the field experience is, is pretty important in the generation of ideas, uh, informing theories and so forth. So that's, that link to natural or semi-natural vegetation has been very critical in, in my experience. Okay. So obviously you've been interested in ecology for a while now. Um, which areas have changed the most from the time when you were kind of first a sort of young undergraduate and postgraduate to the present day? And which do you think will change most in the next, uh, say, 50 years? Well, I suppose one of the things that has changed enormously is the sheer volume of published material that's now available. Uh, you've only got to look at the way that the number of uh, journals just in your field and mine has expanded in, in, in uh, let's say, the last 20 years. So that's a, a big factor. And it means that if you wish to, you can make yourself useful in this field without that link to the countryside, which I mentioned earlier. There's so much published that for some young people, I think the first thought that comes into their minds often must be, well, what do other people think about this problem that I'm becoming interested in? And that is a necessary part of the operation, but it's, it's dangerous because one of the things that we must not stifle is original observation, original thinking about experiments in the lab and work in the field. So do you think there have been any, um, any areas which have kind of flourished and gone? So they're kind of, uh, there was a lot of plant demography that was a key in the 80s and 90s and that seems to have waned a little and now there's more work on functional traits and that seems to be increasing yes, in ecosystem processes. And the molecular uh, approaches have become obviously one of the new themes and the rather spectacular progress that's been made, made in uh, medicine and in molecular biology as a result of this tightening of the focus, this um, concentration on what I call the one species at a time uh, e ecology has been a very significant change and I've been one of those who wanted to preserve a broader approach that involved um, perhaps many species and there is a problem when you, when you go to those broader approaches of how you communicate them to um, those who want to manage ecosystems for example or study communities how do you 
translate what you may have learned about many species into a succinct way of communicating. Okay, I think that, that problem will come up later in the interview when we look at some of the controversies. One of your major insights linked with the kind of, uh, current explosion of interest in functional traits is the so-called CSR model. Uh, could you give us a brief overview of this, um, this major development of yours? Well, um, I think I have to say, remind myself and, and remind you that um, when I was a young postdoc, I went to, I was part of the brain drain, if you like. Uh, I went to America with an immigrant visa and I saw my future there. I, I've always admired America because it seems to me to be a culture which, unlike perhaps sometimes we recognize in our own country, it looks very forward, it's very forward-looking. But actually, over the short time that I was in America, I began to realize how fortunate I'd been to have had the experience of working in Sheffield. Because Sheffield is surrounded by uh, a landscape that contains just about every inland ecosystem in the UK. And I was already, by this time, beginning to think that I wanted to try to help to develop some broad generalizations about the way uh, communities and ecosystems were assembled and how they functioned. And I sensed that this is something I could do e more easily if I came back to the quieter waters of a botany department here in, back in Sheffield. Because I saw there people who were also interested, valued, broader approaches. After all, the head of department here was Professor A.R. Clapham, who actually was responsible for much of the excellent development that was taking place, uh, had taken place recently, uh, in um, recognizing national nature reserves, for example. But he remember, invented the um, biological flora uh, operation in the Journal of Ecology. Mm -hmm which was beginning then to produce these very nice profiles with standardized input of information about key plants in, in, in Britain. And I somehow felt that it would, might be possible to speed that up. It was a very slow process, can I remind you. So is the problem with those, they were just too detailed, do you think? Maybe not, not focused enough? Uh, I think that's true. They were very long. It wasn't that easy to standardize because um, there was a great deal of uh, reviewing of what we knew already, assembling mm. that existing knowledge. And I, I recognized that what was happening was that the uh, fl biological floras sometimes lacked things that I felt were important. And that's what got me thinking, can we in some standardized way perhaps by a combination of working in the field and in the laboratory, can we produce sufficient standardization that we could even begin to consider what was going on in communities as they assembled? And then what with the question was, in what way are ecosystems in different places different from each other? So do you, can you just highlight how the CSNR strategies differ from each other, just so that we... Yes, I think I should give you very short history of how it came about. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we thought that it was it would necessitate an effort in the lab and one in the field. And so we set up small teams to actually uh, go out and collect standardized information from the field across a, a very complex surrounding landscape. But in the laboratory, we decided that we already had a few clues about which were the plant traits were most important in uh, influencing the ecology of species. In other words, things like how big was the seed, uh, how fast did the plant grow, how did it react to being uh, defoliated, uh, was it capable of persisting in habitats, say as dormant seeds in the soil, all these different questions. And some of them were clearly going to have a more general importance than others. And so we set out to measure our first major screening program, I think you could say, was a, a four-year program in which Rod Hunt and I 
with, a bit, with some technical assistance, uh, screened plants for their maximum potential growth rate in what we defined as a good uh, productive growth room environment. And that eventually produced growth rates for 135 species. And when we connected that data with what we already knew from our field survey work uh, about where plants grew and what plants they grew with, etc., um, something jumped out at us. And it was that there was a consistent difference in the ecology of fast and slow growing plants. But beyond that, the fast growers very clearly fell into two groups. One of them was made up of weeds, short-lived species that you might see in farmland and in your garden and so on, clearly associated with disturbed habitats, plants that didn't lead, live very long, and of necessity, speaking teleologically, that they um, had to produce seed or they didn't have much of a future. That was one group. But the other group of fast growers were what we might call the monopolists. Uh, large plants, things like nettles, uh, rose bay, willow herb, bracken, these large plants which uh, could extend clonally in many cases and occupy large areas of landscape and actually reduce it in places to monocultures. So there were the slow growers as well, which everyone knows about that grow in infertile habitats uh, in very hostile environments and where we found that they, in general, were slow-growing species. And that's where the idea of three primary strategies originated. It sounds very simple, but I have to say that it was backed up by a lot of informal um, uh, observations observed in the course of the surveys. Because as we were going around the landscape visiting different habitats, that kind of perspective where the potential growth rates of plants could be used to define primary types. It, it was, I suppose, forming somewhere in the backs of our minds. But it, what turned it into a concrete piece of science was all this hard data collected under standardised conditions in the laboratory. So was there a eureka moment when you were kind of, you know, yes, um, sat back thinking about things and you suddenly thought, it's a triangle, that's how... Yes. And um, as many others who've been involved in this kind of what you've described as a eureka moment, I can remember the evening walking in a circle around my small lawn in a corner of Sheffield and thinking, gosh, yes, uh, that's, what, that's, how it, that's how it is. Wow. <laughs> so obviously this model is not without controversy a lot of controversy over the years with uh, various debates with lots of different people um, why do you think it caused such a lot of controversy I think there's several reasons one is that many people who come into ecology come into it or in those days anyway came into it through the taxonomic route I remember as a first year undergraduate being told that I wouldn't be much of an ecologist if I couldn't identify plants. And that means that you went through this rather than often to become an ecologist, you learn to respect those who knew a great deal of detail about lots of species. And what I was doing here was to suddenly come forward with an idea that was very broad and which um, allowed, if you believed in it, uh, some fairly important generalizations but it was going against the grain to not do things with a strong taxonomic descriptive element in them and where people had progressed to uh, more detailed experimental approaches there the tradition was one species at a time and I'd like to remind you that in those days we're talking now about the 1960s Botany departments up and down the country usually were stocked with plant physiologists. Mm -hmm. And these people took a very hard line with these other, usually younger people in their departments, who, who were um, beginning to profess the idea that maybe ecology could begin to stand on its own feet and not just be a subject that um, is a, a sort of applied science a sort of handmaiden or dependent upon 
many of the uh, harder recognized sciences. Okay, so one of your, um, one of the criticisms people have of this very broad framework you have is that stress is, is just too general a concept. What was your, what's, what your reply to those people be? Well, I think I would ask people who, and that's a, a reasonable approach, I can understand where it might come from, but I would ask those people to watch or to look at the data that we collected much later when we set up a formal test and I, I must tell you that Bernard Tinker at NERC was extremely helpful in this because we realised that they were our main funding agency and that we were asking for something rather special. We were asking them to allow us to do something that Ian Morrison called the integrated screening programme. And so here we took 63 trades, unheard of, huge number, and we screened 43 species taken from all the major habitats of the Sheffield region. And so here we were doing um, what for us was an acid test. We were saying, okay, CSR theory predicts that if you look at the a sufficiently comprehensive list of plant trades and then subject the data you obtain by screening them for these trades. If you use um, uh, the right techniques of, uh, of, of uh, analysis, you should be able to definitively say, do these traits, do these associations of traits, do these primary strategies actually exist? And so I would refer you to a paper in Oikos. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry it's not the Journal of Ecology. <laughs> I know the one. But it's uh, one in Oikos where we reported the patterns that emerged from this objective test. And the three strategies were there in that data. So I have to say in recent times, a number of other laboratories in different parts of the world have repeated in not quite the same scale what we did in the integrated screen so do you, so you're quite happy with say low fertility and uh, dry habitats being the traits you need to cope with those stresses being put into a similar area of well I think you've got to be careful if you use single uh, descriptors like dry I would have to come back at you and say uh, would these be dry productive or dry unproductive so it's a little more subtle than you might think on first inspection. Um, and I think now those sort of queries, I mean, I'm covered in scar tissue. I'm sure you realize <laughs> this. Uh, you're quite right when you say that it was controversial. Um, and so it was natural that people would come forward with all kinds of criticisms. Now, what I observe has happened Happened. That process of interrogation, particularly by what these people I insist on calling the one species sand folk, have asked perfectly legitimate questions, but have rather missed the fact that we're many miles away from Sheffield in various parts of the world, other people have been exploring the CSR in connection with their attempts to interpret their databases. And some of those databases aren't even on plants. They are on other groups of organisms. And one of the delights uh, for me, over quite a long period now, has been to come across these folks and to follow up their publications and to think, my goodness, yes. Uh, there's a, there's a, quite a, large number of people who are finding that the best way to interpret their um, surveys of traits is, is, is triangular. But I think this is the right moment for to make things a little more complicated, frankly, <laughs> because one of the things that emerged from the integrated screening program was the finding that although the um, CSR framework came through loud and clear, what could not be denied and should not be denied is that there were lots of individual traits or small groups of traits that didn't correlate at all with the axes of the model. 
And uh, this is pointed out in that first paper in Oikos. Um, what we were seeing was that there were other dimensions that played a part in defining functional types. Peter Grubb's work is very relevant here on the regeneration niche because many of these traits that didn't fit the triangular model, didn't seem part of it, were in the regenerative phase. Uh, either the seed biology or seedling biology or the regenerative phase. Since then, with my recent co-author Simon Pierce, in, who is in Milan, in Italy, um, we've come to realise that there are other traits that do not fit. And it's interesting to say, well, what in general, what generalisation can we offer here about these things that are clearly important but don't fit, they aren't part of the model. And we now think that these are not just juvenile traits, but they're connected with things that don't operate continuously within the habitat of a species. For example, uh, late frosts, or extreme droughts, or visits by particular herbivores. Um, these are um, traits which are defined by intermittent factors, which are very important in defining the ecology of species, but they don't operate continuously. And this touches on something else which people are worrying about and are working on at the present time. And that is, if you look at a community in the field and list the traits, what you find is there are some which are common to all the species in a community, or most of them. Whereas there are other traits which are characteristic of only perhaps in some cases one of those species. And we think that whether or not there are common traits that are positively related, or if they are actually negatively related, yet still in the same community, the basis for that is the question of how continuously and uniformly the major traits associated with CSR are, are operating. We think it's more or less all the time. If you can go into a farmer's field and find that the same vegetation is all over it, 10 to 1, what it really means is that the CSR traits are operating more or less power, very powerfully and all the time. Whereas there are other things that come into play which determine the taxonomic identity of just a small number of the candidates for getting into that field. Okay, so one of the things you mentioned there was the uh, regen regenerative niche and the CSR. And CSR, it's often said that it assumes those are independent uh, so that you can have any kind of juvenile trait mixed up with adult traits or a wide range. Do you still stand by that or do you think now we've kind of moved towards having a more integrated view across the entire life history? Uh, I think in general the idea stands up that these are um, independently varying and if you, if you look through the, the species that are occupying certain of our classical plant communities you can see just how varied in regenerative traits for example um, the situation may be. But there are just one or two that I think do go across from the characteristics of the mature individual and its regenerative phase. And one in particular is our old friend uh, growth rates, mm -hmm. because very often seedlings of fast-growing plants have fast-growing seedlings. Similarly, we see if we go into uh, communities where there are very, there's very low productivity, it seems to be a common factor across both the juvenile and the adult organism. And in those, okay, okay. Uh, one of the big controversies with CSR related the role of competition 
in controlling community membership, particularly as you moved along productivity gradients. And the idea being, in low productivity, it was the environment that was the key thing. You had to be able to cope with the environment. And in high productivity, it was the competition was the key thing in determining who was occurring along that gradient. Um, why did that cause such intense debate? I think it was because of the obvious conflict be between CSR theory and some of the ideas of, of, of David Tillman in Minnesota. Because he had for a long time been producing research on a nutrient deficient sand plain, a low productivity system in the United States. And in fact it's fair I think to say that in over now quite a long period he's accumulated a great deal of information about what goes on in that system. And he's come to believe, again over a long period, that he can talk in terms of different traits that are that um, generate com as what he calls competitive ability in low fertility situations. So he says competition is more or less everywhere, uh, but the, the, its mechanism is varying according to habitat. And this comes down to what you would regard as a good definition of competition. And um, I think that we have a a gradual, I would like to think anyway perhaps, uh, drift to in our favour in this discussion. It's very hard to maintain the idea that uh, competition is dominating species composition on really low uh, productivity environments. And a big factor in this has been the bringing forward from research across the world really of instances where not only do we not have much competition happening, but also we see positive effects, so-called facilitation. And so it's quite possible that plants that begin to grow near to each other in a very unproductive habitat actually to an extent are in, in inverted commas helping each other through shelter effects, sharing common mycorrhizas, it's even been suggested there's transfer of resources between different species that are connected below ground. Obviously there's shelter effects uh, from wind and factors of that kind. Um, and so I think the evidence is shifting in favourably in the direction of, uh, well, my interpretation of what goes on in unproductive habitats. So. If you're right then, if we take a suite of species and take them to an unproductive habitat and uh, remove the other species that are there, most species won't be able to persist in the habitat because it's actually, the habitat is so nasty they can't, they can't cope. Is that what that well, it, that's particularly true on mountain tops uh, where you have wind damage and where the whole stability of the system relies upon uh, the uh, compact morphology of the species and so on. And there's no doubt that many of the smaller species in those habitats do draw a definite benefit from being a, in the uh, shadow or in the close proximity to larger ones. So um, one last question, this interests me. So could we, can you test your idea then by growing, uh, sort of, you know, take a phytometer and have different uh, fertilizer treatments and weed around it, would that be a way of testing your idea that community membership is controlled by the environment? Because people use those experiments a lot and when I think about them, I think that species grows everywhere when freed from competition, that's typically true. And so that, that would argue that the, the environment is not severe enough at the low end to exclude them. Yes. Um, I think the first thing is we must be very guarded where the evidence is coming from relatively short-term experiments. Everything happens rather slowly in very unproductive habitats and that includes uh, sometimes uh, the persistence of species in habitats that uh, we've introduced them to. Uh, and um, I think there's quite a bit of we can learn from gardeners here because 
uh, we all know how easy it is, relatively speaking, to establish rockeries and so on. And often, even if we put in plants that you never see in those circumstances, they'll persist for quite a long time. So I, I just would ask people who want to use that line of evidence, please, to do longer experiments so that we can really find out what the true equilibrium situations are uh, in, in unproductive habitats. And your, your one last thing on this, so there's still intraspecific competition now, assume, I assume, otherwise they wouldn't be able to evolve. I mean, you have to have the, you know, be able, there's going to be competition within a species to determine which genotypes are best at exploiting their habitat. Now, I think that in, in my recent book with uh, Simon Pierce, we've um, emphasised an argument that I think most geneticists would agree with, and that is that evolution continues even when plants are growing as isolated individuals. And we feel sufficiently strongly about this that we've actually published pictures of, from various places, even including the top of Snowden, of, of plants that do grow quite isolated from other species, and yet are quite, as far as I can see, quite capable still of evolving in relation to those habitats. Uh, and um, why not? Uh, uh, selection can take place, in, in my judgment anyway, in, in the absence of competing species. No, I was talking within those species, so you've... Well, uh, selection operates on individuals within populations, and uh, therefore it's perfectly possible for the process of evolution to continue, even if the plants aren't in very direct contact. On the other hand, I find it hard to, to recognise as being the result of competition circumstances where plants are growing in isolation. It's hard to think that competition is a powerful uh, factor in those circumstances. It's a confusion, I think, in thinking between fitness, which can be due to a vast number of factors including severe disturbance or severe stress, as I would call it, low productivity. Um, that can, those things can proceed without competition, as we define it in relation to resource capture. Okay. So one of the things you mentioned then was facilitation, and recently there's been a lot of work on facilitation of what's called the stress gradient hypothesis. And I was wondering just how that fits in with the CSR view of the world. Well, uh, I think the experts in this field, and I'm not one of them, um, are those who have been studying what happens in uh, unproductive and habitats at, at, the, at the rather, um, de let's call it the dangerous end of a productivity gradient. And what they're telling us is that there is still some competition, and it happens in, according to weather, according to um, the arrival or not of particular herbivores, for example, which can be damaging. Um, in those circumstances, there are periods when facilitation is dominant, and there are other times when the balance switches towards uh, competition. But the, in, in terms of CSR theory, there's a huge difference in the in impact and intensity of competition in low productivity habitats as opposed to what I call plant heaven where uh, there's lots of nutrients, plenty of water, the temperatures are um, supportive uh, and the plants can grow and monopolise and even reduce the vegetation to monoculture. Okay. Um, so we'll stay on stress for a second. So how, how would you measure stress? And how can you estimate? And can you estimate it by doing these experiments where you weed around plants and see yes. how they grow? And this, is, this is interesting because it reminds me of a, an argument I had with John Harper uh, about uh, turning CSR theory into a practical uh, I think procedure. I read it just the other day. <laughs> yes. And um, I think the answer is simple. Uh, stress is recognisable in terms of the uh, production of dry matter per unit area per unit time and the simplest way to do it is on a yearly basis 
to look and see what has been the production. And if, if, if I may, I'll slip in a definition of disturbance, mm -hmm. and that's the uh, loss of dry matter production, which is measurable, uh, over, uh, best done on an annual basis, um, uh, per unit uh, square metre, let's say. So recently it's been argued that um, measures of stress should be defined that are independent of plant growth. Does that make any sense to you, or how can you... Those seem to me to break the definition of stress. Yes, I, I think they should, because um, if you just were to measure without dif uh, differentiating between the, the loss due to disturbance, herbivores, etc., you would miss, you wouldn't be able to do a complete analysis and distinguish between stress and disturbance. No, but, but I think they can be measured uh, on, a, on an annual basis. No, but I'm, so what we, people have recently argued is that, um, is that measures of stress should be, should be to be measured that are in a way that's independent of the growth of the species you're interested in. And to me that seems crazy because obviously if your species can't grow, then there's lots of stress or grow very slowly. So I'm wondering, are there ways of, and of course, how would you know it was a stress gradient when the species grow equally well at either ends of it? Well, um, I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm fully understanding what these objections are, but um, I think I've got to mention the fact that there's an entirely different use of the word stress, alive and well, mm -hmm. most unfortunately, I believe, okay. in the field of medicine. There's a man called Sale, who a long time ago said that, uh, effectively he said, uh, stress is the condition or the thing we don't like internally. Uh, the, in other words, what the physicists would call strain, that is the reaction, the consequences of what I regard as stress. Stress is defined by the physics people as the um, impact. Think of a metal bar. Mm -hmm. Stress is the forces that are bending the bar. Strain is the things that eventually lead to rupture of the metal bar, the consequences. So we've got these two, we've got these, uh -huh. of the word stress. One is an environmental condition and the other as the internal response of the organism. So I'd like to observe a very strict uh, differentiation of the two terms. Okay. I think that's the main ones down to there. I'll cut that bit out. Um, in your recent book, um, you were quite outspoken about the, uh, the role phylogeny uh, should play in the interpretation of ecological data. And lots of people disagree with, uh, with this. I wonder if you could kind of uh, just summarise why you feel uh, it's been overplayed, maybe. One of the pressures that all scientists, and particularly young scientists, um, experience now is the need to publish quickly. And that means that if you can find, without doing new research, information that may help you to understand the results of your or things you've seen or things that you wish to try and explain in ecology it's very tempting to take these this readily available information which we have now due to modern molecular techniques to see the relationships between the um, plants or the animals that you happen to be studying the, the, that whole approach of using phylogenetic information to interpret ecological phenomena is based on the idea that the things that are used to, differ, to, to recognize different phylogenies are the same things that may be important in the ecological effects we want to explain. And unfortunately, it's not true. Families of plants, for example, or animals, um, have a very long history and during that history they can diversify in a huge variety of ways and so it's, it's perfectly possible for you to see differences that um, you s 
see that they're correlated with a difference in phylogeny. But it, it, it isn't in any way a, a, an acceptable to me way of saying, ah, I now understand. Because as, as many have pointed out, um, patterns that have been helpful, differences that have been useful to phylogeny uh, may be quite different from those that explain differences in the behaviour in an ecological context. So I would say, unfortunately, we, we do have to do some new work. You can't just rush off with a viable hypothesis on this. Um, it's necessary sometimes, as we did, let's say, in some of our screening work, to actually find out if you can identify what the real mechanisms are that explain ecological um, phenomena. Okay. So I get, but you would agree, though, if you had repeated events, say whenever seed size got bigger, something changed, and that occurred you know, every time different species diverged from each other, that would be a strong evidence that there's some kind of coupling in what's going on. Whereas if you had two very distantly related plant families, say big seeded and not, that happen to differ in the other trait, that would be some evidence, but not quite as strong as that it happens. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I'm not against the use of phylogeny to define the hypothesis to be tested. But what I want to see is more often rigorous experimentation to back up that proposition. Okay. So we'll move finally on to debates. As I said, you've been involved in quite a few debates over the years, and um, I'm wondering what general lessons ecologists should take from these debates. How have these debates moved our science on, would you say? Well, I, I'm, this may not be the answer you were expecting, but I think I'm going to comment on the psychology uh, aspect here. Um, I think that what to me is one of the most exciting possibilities in our um, ecological work is that we can begin to see ourselves moving to a position where we are not really regarded any longer as just an applied science. Ecology can have general theories which if they can be rigorously tested can allow us to generalise a little more than we do, to explain our science in simpler, more general terms. I sometimes look at uh, environmental issues and I look to see who are the people who've been called in to explain, diagnose the problem, mm -hmm. suggest the answers. On too few occasions, the people who are leading those discussions are not ecologists. They, they're perfectly capable professional people, engineers, uh, people who would not all call themselves ecologists. We've got to do whatever it takes, I think, to, to turn our science into a very practical, rather succinct, useful science. And that involves doing some of the things that I know we did, in, particularly in our early days, the, the survey work, the screening work, is times it's rather boring. And the only way we can get it across is for senior people to take part in it. And uh, I've done a lot of teamwork. I'm a bit of a team man. I played football and cricket most of my earlier life. I hear you were a very effective cricketer. Oh, well, <laughs> that's, that's another tale of a different time. But um, I enjoy teamwork. Uh, I think that uh, it's the way to uh, get what I think is really important information about the functioning and assembly of communities and so forth. And uh, I would like to see much more of this, and it's equivalent to what used to happen in the early days of some of the established scientists. Imagine what it was like in the days when the chemists were trying to work out what the atomic weights were of organisms. Of, of the, the elements and so on. That uh, Germans in particular made wonderful strides. A lot of it was pretty boring stuff to do, but it laid the foundations for beginning to call yourself a science and to be authoritative. 
And ecologists are not sufficiently authoritative because the centre of our science, and particularly the theory, is rather missing. And the one species, one species at a time approach, which many find as a quick route into ecology at the present time, and I don't decry it because we need to know often about the intimate details of species that are in trouble, species that are acting uh, as invaders, for example, and we'd like to, to suppress. Uh, so I'm not saying we shouldn't do some of this sort of work, but the, the work that can help us to develop broad generalizations that will be helpful in our interactions with the public, uh, that's, that needs to be strengthened. Okay, so let's move on to the questions we've received from Twitter and Facebook. One person wants to know if CSR isn't just RK selection unpacked into three instead of two categories. Well, that's the way the history of this area uh, falls out, in the sense that, let's give credit where credit's due here, MacArthur and Wilson really did get about halfway to a general theory of adaptive specialization. Um, it, it was a, in its time, it was a very popular idea. What led to difficulty was that we never sorted out for a very long time what K meant. You see, it, it, was, it, it actually combined two things. Were these K organisms, which were said to be often large, to delay their reproduction and to live for a long time. Yeah, yeah, to live for a long time. Um, they were said to be a definable type, but actually, it was never sorted out whether K meant they're in a depleted environment and therefore it's a case of tolerance, or are they in an environment in which uh, the resources are now being thought over by the different species. And when we did something like the integrated screening program, there was very definitely two camps, if you like, two components in these long-lived things. The things that became strong competitors, had become strong competitors, and those that were capable of tolerating uh, the conditions in really depleted environments. So, you know, it, I think both theories are, well, the CS, uh, sorry, um, uh, RK was a big stride forward. So RK is typically applied to animals, and uh, more recently you've been arguing that CSR could be taken from plants to animals. Yes, I'll, I'll just comment that um, botanists over the years have tended to be rather modest individuals and to be uh, easily um, um, influenced by the zoologists. That's okay, we don't mind. Uh, but what's happened recently is we've begun to realise that we had a huge advantage uh, as botanists because as John Harper said, plants stand still and wait to be counted. They don't run about, they don't migrate halfway around the planet, and the, that sort of thing which does make zoology more of a challenge. And so because we were dealing with a simpler situation, perhaps it's reasonable that we were the first to recognize what I regard as a significant generalization. And so, but nevertheless, it's come as a bit of a surprise to find that um, around the world, there are individuals who are independently in inventing um, three-way trade-offs between competition, um, disturbance and stress. Uh, and one of the most spectacular is um, uh, the work of um, a group at, uh, in Texas, the Texas A&M, a wine miller and his colleagues. And they've, to my satisfaction, classified fish uh, into classification that's very similar to CSR. Uh, there's similar work on um, uh, corals, uh, 
work coming along now on mammals. Fungi have been worked on for a long time and there's a presidential address even in which uh, we see a classification of, of the kind that's very similar to CSR. So the zoologists and some of the microbiologists are now considering this possibility that this initially rather controversial idea that came from the botanists of all people might actually stand up in these other areas of ecology. So I look forward to a time when we can really get together on this. Okay, so our final question from Twitter is what is the most common error in ecology nowadays and how can it be corrected? Well, I think I'm going to have to go back to something that surfaced at an earlier time in our interview, and that is to um, perhaps um, believe, I think it's a mistake to believe, that our subject, ecology, cannot assume the more mature state that we see in many of the established sciences. What we're lacking at the moment is general framework, not just in, with respect to things I've worked with or with colleagues, um, but general ideas that will make it so much easier for us to converse with those people, including politicians, managers, folks who we really want to influence and to do the right thing by the planet. What we see at the moment is an immense folk, a really active attack by researchers in the fields of medicine to make the circumstances better for all as we go forward. But it, that's no, not going to do the trick for us long term if we haven't looked after the environment as well. And I think ecology's got to start to stand up and join the big debate about how we're going to spend our money, how what we're going to protect, what are going to be our priorities in the future. Okay. Well, I think we'll draw it to an end there. I'd like to thank Phil for a fascinating uh, interview. And um, Well, I've enjoyed this, and I thank you, you Mark, and the BES for, and Journal of Ecology for inviting me. 